Let's uh, y'all can go back to go back to your 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 seats again. If you want, need some water, coffee, go ahead. As you're going there, you can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter ten. This is a uh, this is one of those passages that uh, it, there's a lot in it. Okay, there's so much here, and um, and I'm excited to dig into it. So what I'm gonna do now? I'm, I'm just gonna I'm gonna read the passage for us. And then I'll pray, and then we'll just go, go right in, all right? So Acts chapter 10, and we'll be going through verse 23, just the beginning of it. Uh, so Acts chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them on to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I'm the one you are looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in to be his guest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is perfect. It converts the soul. It gives wisdom to we who are unlearned. It gives enlightenment to our eyes. Lord, we humbly implore you that through your goodness that you would enlighten our minds and our hearts by your spirit so that we can understand your word and we can live according to it. Even in these next few moments, even for me as a teach, Lord, grant us a humility. Grant us a trite nature in our hearts that we might tremble at your word and so receive your eye and your blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like I was saying, this passage of Scripture, it's, it's one of the most significant chapters in the whole book of Acts. 
Um, for here, it's, it's kind of the, it's the ascent, it's the start of the ascent of the mountain as the gospel goes towards the ends of the earth, right? It's a hinge point in the book of Acts. For again, the good news of the kingdom, it begins to spread to the Gentile or non-Jewish nations. It's kind of the start of the last leg of Christ's missional blueprint. Remember in Acts 1.8, the Lord said before he ascended, he said to his apostles, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Cornelius and his household receiving the kingdom, receiving the good news of the kingdom and the promise of the kingdom, namely the Holy Spirit, later in the chapter, this is kind of the first domino of hundreds of thousands of others that will take place throughout the rest of the book of Acts and that we ourselves will fall into uh, eventually. A second reason this, this text of Scripture is so significant is because within this text, the, the mighty dividing wall of hostility that existed between Jews and Gentiles is divinely broken down. The cracks begin to form and the Lord smashes it completely. You see, in those days, the two groupings of people seen here, Jews and Gentiles, they absolutely hated each other. And this, they didn't hate each other like, you know, Clemson and South Carolina fans hate each other. Or like, you know, little rivalries that take place in sports. They didn't hate each other like that. There was a deep, deep hostility and animosity between these two groups. The Jews, they viewed the Gentiles as refuse. I mean, really. They viewed the Gentiles as those who were cut off from God. And not only who were cut off from God, but who had the potential to make them unclean and cut off as well. There's, there's this phrase, um, knock the dust off your feet. You guys have heard that phrase before. Right. Jesus uses this phrase in Luke chapter 10. He's instructing the 70. He sends, to, he sends them out and he tells them, if anybody does not accept the good news of the kingdom, before you leave their house, knock the dust off your feet. Well, he was sending those 70 to Jewish people. So he's basically saying, hey, take this phrase, knock the dust off your feet, and say it to Jews. But that phrase, knock the dust off your feet, that was a common phrase back then that Jews would use. And it really portrays the hatred and the animosity they had to Gentiles. But what they're saying is, even the dust that comes from Gentiles moving around and doing their thing, even that dust on your feet can make you unclean. So knock that stuff off before you come near. Knock the dust off your feet. Again, they hated the Gentiles. There's great animosity there. On top of that, you've got you know, these many uh, Jewish dietary, ceremonial, moral laws, all of these that God had given them. And they were given to make a hard distinction between Israel and the Gentile nations. In a way, it cut off real fellowship between these two groups. And then, if you were the recipient of such hostility, if you were a Gentile, and this is how you were thought of, well, then how would you feel? <laughs> Not too great, right? They had scorn for the Jews, the Gentiles did. Uh, I mean, again, they viewed the dust, their, their dust, as you know, making them unclean. Like that, that would make you... You would hate somebody, right? Naturally, that would be your thought towards them. Are you kidding me? You think about that towards me? But they also, they mocked the Jewish laws. They mocked the Jewish customs. They mocked the ceremonies and the festivals and everything that they did. They, they mocked them. There was a lot of scorn there. But yet, in this chapter, the Lord gloriously declares the Gentiles clean. And He flings open the door for the Gentiles to enter into the kingdom through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And He starts... By zeroing in on this one guy, Cornelius, in his household. Again, the first domino of many that would come after him. So what I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to walk through the text. We're just going to walk through the narrative again. I'm going to give you, kind of color it with some, 
with, with some truth, you know, exegeted a little bit. And then at the end, I got four kind of principle, kingdom principles that are made clear throughout the narrative. And those principles are the ones where we find application, all right? And that's just a good practice as you read the Bible, as you come to narratives. You know, I, I, honestly, you can read a narrative and you can say, oh, well, man, I'm, I'm Cornelius. Let me put on that suit. And you can kind of act like Cornelius. Not a good practice. Not a good thing to do. When we read narratives in the Bible, what, what we find from them are principles that the Lord lays out for us. And so from those principles, which become evident through the stories, we can then draw our application. All right? That's good practice for, for Bible reading. So that's what we're going to do this morning. All right. So starting in the beginning, the entry point for the gospel in the Gentiles, verse 1, is through the household of Cornelius. And Cornelius, he was a centurion of the Italian cohort. So centurions back in those days, they were high-ranking military officials who through the years and through experience had climbed the ranks. All right? That's, that's what they, they were men who they led battalions of Roman soldiers into battle. Each centurion had 100 men up under his command. So again, a lot of authority there, 100 men up under a single centurion. They would lead them into battle. They would train the younger soldiers. They would keep order, and they would keep discipline within their battalions as well. They were to head honcho. So Cornelius, he was a man of great prestige. He was a man that was held in high regard by those that he was leading, but also we see by those that were outside of those under his authority. He was a man of tremendous societal influence. He had servants and soldiers who kept his house and protected his house. And throughout the rest of chapter 10, we see that he's this proven patriarch over really a large and expansive household network and societal network. But Cornelius... In many ways, some of these things that I just said would be true of other centurions, but Cornelius was different. He was a different centurion. He carried all the clout that a centurion officer had, but he was also very different. Look in verse 2. Cornelius is described by Luke as a devout man who feared God with all of his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. And then to Peter, Cornelius' uh, sent servants and the soldier, they described him as an upright and God-fearing man who's well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. <laughs> Again, whole Jewish nation. I just described the hostility that existed between those two groups. These Jews, they look at this centurion who had all this authority and they held him in honor. And then whenever, uh, when Peter comes back later in chapter 10 to Cornelius' house, we see this humility that this man of great authority had, right? Peter walks into, walks into the house. This is an apostle. He was a fisherman at one point. Again, we look at him as he has much authority. But in those days, he's just your average, common, everyday man. And later in chapter 10, Cornelius actually falls before him and is, and is like humble before Peter. Um, so again, he's different, all right? So at some point in Cornelius' life, his pagan idolatry was pushed aside, and he submitted to the best of his ability he submitted his life to the Lord of Lords. And not only did he personally submit his life to the Lord, but he, taught, he led and taught his household to fear God as well. His faith influenced his life. It influenced his, his household. It influenced his work. And it made him a man honored not only by the soldiers who were under his authority, but by the whole Jewish nation, as we just said. And because of this, he was not only an easy conduit for the blessing of God to flow downstream for generations, but he was a chosen conduit for God's outpouring of blessing to the Gentiles. Cornelius was about as close, from the descriptions that are given, he's about as close as you can get 
to being in the kingdom of God without being in the kingdom of God. Devout, God-fearer, leading his family, held in honor by those who are in the covenant, and yet he's outside of the covenant, right? That's a principle that we need to, we need to look at and be aware of. It's a warning for us, right? You can be real close to the kingdom. You can be this close and still not be in the kingdom. So what was the difference for Cornelius? What made the difference? Well, he was not yet born again. He was not yet regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and that was, that's what God does. He, he takes him where he's at, and he finishes, which is, which is really beautiful. So, so look what happens to Cornelius. Um, it says, about the ninth hour of the day, around 3 p.m., he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, you just imagine, like, like a house-shaking voice, you know, because this is, this is Cornelius. The dude has been in battle. This is a soldier. This is an officer. And it says that he stared at him in terror. He's terrified. This mighty man is terrified. He says, well, well, you know, what is it, Lord? What, what, what is it? And then the Lord says to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. You see, the gift of salvation to Cornelius, to us, to everyone in the kingdom, it's all grace. All grace. All of it. By grace through faith in Christ, we've been saved. And yet, so we've done nothing to merit salvation. And yet, in the kingdom of God, obedience, faith, and devotion is clearly and abundantly rewarded. In Isaiah 66, verse, uh, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, it's written, This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble, contrite, and trembles at my word. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro all throughout the earth, looking for the one who fears him. This is the one to whom I will look. One who's humble, who's contrite, and trembles at my word. In the parable of the talents, which servant that was entrusted with talents to produce harvest for his master is given more? Which one? The one, the one who multiplies it. He takes what was given, he puts it in the ground, he faithfully and sacrificially stewards all that he had been given. You see, so much of our modern day Christianity views life and obedience really as inconsequential to the blessing of God. And some of that's when we're so grace-centered, so gospel-centered, which is good. It's right. It's what we need. There's a massive focus there. It's, it's good. However, the unintended fruit of that is a revamp of this cheap grace that Dietrich Bonhoeffer spent so much of his life going against, right? We're saved by grace. We're sustained by grace. We ultimately receive the kingdom by grace, and yet, our daily lives, our daily obedience, our daily faith that comes out of our fingertips every single day, it matters way more than we often assume. The pattern and practice of Cornelius' life, it put him in the bullseye of God's blessing. Here is a man whose prayers and whose alms have ascended as a memorial unto me. You know? And we're, we're going to talk about this more when we get down into some of those principles. Um, but, but, but anyway, he, he, Cornelius is a great example for us, especially for us men. This is a great example for us to look at and to emulate. This is, this is a man that we ought to strive to be like, right? He feared God personally, and then he led his family to do the same thing. So men, it's not easy to imagine what, his, what did meals look like in Cornelius' house. Yeah, I'm not, we're not going to, you know, we can assume a lot of things. But again, he fears God, and his whole household fears God. So this man took what he had and he put it, he put the seed in the ground. He's working it, right? Cornelius, he also lived in such a way outside of his house that he was respected by those under his authority and those outside of his authority, right? 
He was surely jeering. I mean, you think about it. He's spending time with other centurions, right? And again, this dude is different. He's surely being jeered at. He's surely being excluded from conversations with other officers. I'm sure he's ostracized in different ways because he's not taking part in the pagan practices that the other centurions would have done. But yet, he climbed the ranks, didn't he? His work was done in such a way that he could not be ignored. He couldn't be ignored. His work was so good, right? Send him up. We need Cornelius. We need him in the ranks. So again, men, I'm just keying in on us. We ought to strive to be the best at our profession, the best that we can be, to allow our obedience and our, our, our devotion to the king to influence everything that we do, things that we do personally, things that we do in our homes, things that we do at work. This is, this is how we ought to be. And again, Cornelius' faith in his life, it put him in a place to respond on God's call on his life, right? He responded with immediate obedience, immediate. The instructions to him were made very clear by this angel. He says, now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. And then in verse 7 it says, when the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier. He told them everything and he sent them off. No questions asked, nothing. He obeyed immediately. And you think this would have been really easy for Cornelius after this angel leaves and he kind of gets himself back together to start asking some questions, right? I've been looking for this. I've been wanting these answers. Like, I've been devoting myself to this faith. I've been trying to get in. Like, why can't this angel just... Is there not somebody in Caesarea that can tell me the good news? Can I just go to Joppa myself? But that's not what he does. There's a faith and there's an obedience to go, okay, these are my instructions. I have those who are under my authority. I, too, am under authority. I will... I will obey, right? So this is what his faith called him to do. So he responded with faith and obedience, and then he waited patiently for the will of God to unfold in his life. He waited patiently. It took days. This is Cornelius again. He's going against the grain. He wants to be in the kingdom. A God-fearer. He's devout. He receives this vision that puts him on the ground, and then he has to wait days to hear back. Go get this guy Peter, the angel tells him. Go get him. Go get this guy. He's like, what am I, wait, like, what's he going to do? Who is this Peter? What's he going to tell me about? What's, what, what am I missing? He's having to wait. He waited patiently. Don't we often try to rush through things? Now, Lord, I, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying to get in. And then instead of just waiting patiently for the will of God to unfold, if you're like me, you want to see the plan, you want to see it all scheduled out, Matt, you know. You want to see it all scheduled out, and, and, and so I try to rush through it. It's like, well, okay, this is what God's doing. I'm just going to go. No. What this God-fearer did, Cornelius, he waited patiently. So we ought to wait patiently for the Lord to, to unfold. And then in verse 9, we kind of turn from this view on the recipient of the message to now Luke, Luke turns our attention to Peter. All right, let's look at this messenger, right? We're told that the next day, in a couple days, as Cornelius' envoy is approaching the city, Peter, he's up on the roof around noon, spending time in prayer, right? In those days, it's kind of weird. We don't, you know, you're not, I don't know when the last time you guys went up on your roof is, but probably not anytime recent. But in those days, and even in, in modern day, in a lot of cities like Caesarea, even in India, a lot of stuff happens on the roof. It's flat. You know, the houses were really close together, closer even than these that are here. I mean, they're like real tight. They're sharing like exterior wall. They're sharing the wall, you know. So the only space you have is really up on the roof. So you go on the roof to have lunch. You go on the roof to have parties. Kids would go up on the roof to play. You hang laundry up there. And then Caesarea is by the sea. So it felt nice up there. 
So Peter, he goes up on the roof, spends time praying. It's about lunchtime, so in my mind, he kind of hollers down to Simon, maybe Simon's wife or maybe Simon's kids are down there. He hollers, all right, it's time to eat. Can y'all, can y'all make me something to eat? You know. He hollers down to eat. And while he's waiting for lunch to be prepared, the Bible says that he fell into a trance. He fell into a trance. So now, someone who is reading the Bible, if they were familiar with their Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament Bible, when they saw this word trance in the Greek, they would have, alarm bells would start ringing off in their minds. Sirens would start going off. Because this word right here is a word that's used in other places where God does something miraculous and spectacular. It's, it's a Greek word, I'm not going to say it right, but ecstasis. It's where we get our word ecstasy from. It's the same, the same root there. It's, it's a state of mind in which normal consciousness and our normal senses are suspended. And then God then intervenes. God then works mightily. It's the same word in Genesis chapter 2, verse 21, when Adam goes into a deep sleep, it says in the English, deep sleep, same word is used there. The, the, and what happens there in that moment is that Adam goes into this deep sleep, into this trance, ribs taken forth, and whoa, man, comes out, right? The Lord creates woman, a helper fit for him. Pretty amazing moment. It's the same word. I won't give you every instance, but in Genesis chapter 15, verse 12, it's the same word that's used here. A deep sleep comes upon Abraham, and the Lord then cuts covenant with him. You will be the one through whom the families of the earth will be blessed. Cuts covenant with him um, through this trance. So again, this word comes up, alarm bells start going off, and then look at what happens. Something big pops off. Peter, uh, Peter falls into a trance, and he sees the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that's common or unclean. And then the voice came to him again a second time. I love, don't you love Peter? This is so, this is him. The voice comes a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happens three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. So again, he sees he falls into a trance, this deep sleep comes upon him, and this sheet is let down from heaven, tied to four corners. And in this sheet, there's all types of animals in it. You've got, you've got all types of animals, ones that were clean and some that were unclean. And the Lord commanded Peter to do what? What's the command? Rise, kill, eat. And Peter, he, he shows us how big of a deal this is. He responds to his Lord, not with immediate obedience, right? What does he say? Wait, 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 wait a second. No, no, no. I have, I have never done this before. I have never. No way, Lord, could I do that. I have never done that before. I can't, I can't do it. And you see, that was what a faithful Jewish believer would have done. This is how he would have lived. In Leviticus 11, I won't take time. You ought to read it. Read it this afternoon as you rest. Read Leviticus 11. It's really interesting, but all the dietary laws are outlined there. What should and shouldn't be eaten. And these laws, they're just one set of many laws that were given to Israel, to Jews, that made a sharp distinction between the Jews, God's chosen people inside His covenant, and then the Gentiles, the people outside of God's covenant. So the laws within the Old Testament like this were given by God to distinguish between clean 
and unclean or common things. So let me just, we're going to get into this a little bit because it's important to understand. So to eat something that was common or to eat something that was unclean was to then become unclean yourself. And after you had done that, you had to go through a number of different rituals to be considered clean again in the eyes of God and the broader Jewish society. And again, that, that's pretty weird for us to think about in our common day. But for Jews, this was tremendously important. Super, super important. Paul points out in, in Galatians that the laws that were given to the Jews, to the Israelites, they served as, school, as a schoolmaster for the Jews. They were the schoolmaster. And, and, and they're schoolmaster for us prior to understanding the gospel. For within them, there's so many lessons to learn and apply to ourselves and more importantly, to God. The law teaches us who we are. It teaches us who God is. So within these laws, God's teaching us about Himself. He's making a strong, powerful, and abundantly clear and even palpable point that He is holy. He is other. That He is set apart. That God is not common, right? He is absolutely righteous in every regard. You see, the cleanliness laws that were given by God, they're making this point again and again and again. If you're going to be in fellowship with this God who is other, with this God who is pure, then you yourself must be other. You yourself must be clean. You must be pure. You must be set apart. You must be clean. And in light of, again, the law is a schoolmaster, in light of the degree of purity and cleanliness that was required, then the sinfulness of mankind is made clear again and again and again and again. You are not clean. You are not clean. You are not pure. You are not. You are not. You are not. You are defiled in every way. So the Jewish society, it revolved around staying morally, ceremonially, and even civilly clean and pure. That's what the society revolved around. And, and, and as, it, as it adhered to this law, it created a fellowship with God, and it created a fellowship with one another that you could see. You could smell it. I mean, literally, you could smell it. You could see it in the way they walked, in the way they talked, what they did in their homes, the way they dressed. This otherness was everywhere. And that's intentional. It's to show who God is, to show what His people are to look like. But then again, again and again and again and again, the utter sinfulness of humanity is made clear. The need for God's grace, the need for God's mercy, the need for God's cleansing is made abundantly clear and palpable again in the everyday moments of, of life. And even in the temple, this is what God's doing. He's teaching His people who He is. And not just teaching His people, He's teaching the Gentiles who He is. By grace, God would cleanse the sinfulness of His people by providing them with momentary sacrifices that by faith would provide them with pardon for sins. If you're unclean, here's a way that you can be made clean. Again, by faith, not just on the sacrifice, but by faith in what God's doing in the sacrifice, you can be cleansed. But momentarily. That's why in Hebrews it says that the priests stood up every day again and again and again and again and again. They're making sacrifices on behalf of themselves and on behalf of the people. And again, we've already said this, but I just want to say it one more time, like the distinction between Jews and Gentiles that this makes. You've got people that are devoting themselves to adhering to this law. And then you've got a people that you know, aren't, aren't doing this at all. The distinction that's there is so tight. And Peter, even he's even showing his devotion. That by no means, Lord, by no means can I do this. I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. But then, look at what God does. 
the big moment, right, that, that Peter's in a trance for. The voice comes a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Do not call common. What God has made clean, do not call unclean. It's in this verse here. This verse is the reason we do not adhere to the ceremonial laws of the Israelites anymore. Because of this, what God is doing in this verse. Here, here the Lord is declaring that the means through which His people would remain pure and clean before Him and the world around them. It's not through what they eat. It's not through what they touch. It's not through what they wear. It's not through outward signs like circumcision. It rather comes through faith and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's being declared in this verse. What God has made clean, do not call common. I'll just say it one more time. That God is saying that the means through which His people remain pure and clean before Him. It's not through what they eat. It's not through what they touch. It's not through what they wear. It's not through outward signs. It's through faith and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. So in power and grace, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we've been confessing all morning, He bore our moral uncleanliness, our moral impurity. He bore the wrath we deserve on the cross. He paid the penalty that our constant defiling of sin deserves with His sacrificial death and resurrection. And then by grace through faith in this work, we are saved. He cleanses us. Through, by grace, through faith in this work, He cleanses us from our unrighteousness through confession and faith in the gospel. That's the good news, right? That's why we're here. Because Christ has done this. This is the great work that He has done. So the law has served its purpose and it has been fulfilled in Christ. We're no longer cleansed through adherence to its laws, but rather through the blood of Christ. And again, to make the point clear, the Lord repeats the vision three different times. And it's funny, Peter, this is Peter, right? Three different times. Well, what happens to Peter three, three, different, three times? He denies Christ three times, and then what happens? He's restored three times. His denial is three times, and his restoration is three times. And now, this devout Jew, right, who had never eaten anything unclean, the Lord, just to make the point abundantly clear, three times, he says, what God, what God makes clean, do not call God has made claim, do not call common. And the effects of this act of God are eternally significant and far wider in scope than we have time to consider in this, in this short amount of time that we've got. I'm already going long, but I just wanted to, so sorry. We don't have time to go through it all, but you see the effects immediately. You've got, again, you've got a Jew who, again, he would be using that phrase, hey, knock the dust off your feet before you come back from that side of town. I don't want that dust in my house. He would be saying that. And now... He takes these Gentiles who had come to him, strangers he had never met. These, these Gentiles come to his door, and what does he say? He invites them in. I'm the one you're looking for. I'm the guy. And then he invites them in to be his guest. What God has made clean, do not call common. You can just imagine in the remainder of that passage after that vision is given how Peter's putting together these pieces that, that he's pondering the vision, right? He's pondering it. He's thinking about it. He's going... Okay, the, so the laws are not, like we don't need the laws anymore. So you just think about what that's doing to his mind and his heart. Again, he's, he's, he's heard these messianic prophecies. He's heard, oh, thanks, thanks, he's heard these prophecies all throughout his life of what God was going to do. Like Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 24 through 27, the Lord makes this promise. He said, I will take you from the nations. I'll gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. 
I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now through the work of Christ, the actual nations are be about to be gathered in. The actual nations are about to be made clean. And the actual nations are about to receive the same spirit that the Jews had received on the day of Pentecost. There's a bunch of other passages that I wrote down. But just think about Peter as he's pondering this vision and all the implications that are there, right? All the implications. And he responds on one of them immediately. Okay, what God has said is clean. I'm not going to call common. You don't even have to knock the dust off your feet. Come on into my house. Not my house. Come on into Simon's house. The tanner. He welcomes men to be guests. So the next couple weeks, we're going to keep going through this passage. All right, we're going to look at the next episode. Okay, so then what happens after that? We'll look at that next week. And then we'll finish out in two weeks. We'll see when ultimately Gentiles do receive the Holy Spirit. Um, Glorious chapter of Scripture. I just encourage you over the next couple weeks, man, read this thing. Ponder on it. Pull out your study Bibles. Look at cross-references. Dig into some of those prophecies that are being fulfilled. This is a huge chapter of Scripture in in all of the Bible. All right, so real quick, I want to give you four principles, kingdom principles that are made evident in this narrative for our application. And again, I'm not, I don't have a ton of time to like expound on each one of these, but just you can write it down and, and, and then we'll dig into it. You can dig into it later. But number one, see that God sovereignly chooses both the recipient and the messenger of his good news. God sovereignly chose both the recipient of the good news of the kingdom and the messenger of the good news of the kingdom. So first, he chose the recipient of his good news. Listen, Cornelius, he was was abnormal, right, among centurions. But he was not alone. There were other men like him. They actually had a term. The Jews had a term for men like them. They called them God-fearers is what they would call them. Here's a God-fearer. He's not a full-fledged proselyte. He hasn't fully come in to the the new covenant. But he's a God-fearer. He fears God. He obeys him, right? So this, this is who Cornelius was. Why did God choose Cornelius? Again, there were other God-fearers. There were other people who fit the bill. There were other people who were respectable. Why did God choose them? Because God's sovereign. That's it. He, he does it. He's sovereign. He chooses. I, you know, All we can do is say with Paul in Romans 11, all we can say is, oh, the, dip, the depths of the richest wisdom and knowledge of God. His judgments are unsearchable and His ways are inscrutable for who has known the mind of the Lord who's been his counsel for from him through him and to him are all things to him be glory forevermore God but God chose him sovereignly isolates Cornelius this is my guy beautiful but then God sovereignly chooses Peter as his messenger as well Peter wasn't looking to go spend time in Caesarea he wasn't out for a vacation no God sovereignly interrupts Peter's life and makes him into this mouthpiece that will be the one to declare the good news Again, we can go through and we can outline some different things. I mean, why would God choose Peter? And I think there's arguments to be made. But again, we ought to just say because God is sovereign. There were believers in Caesarea. God could have used other means, and yet he chose. His, his sovereign path forward was to choose Peter, this knucklehead, who was an ardent, devo- he was devoted in his Jewish way. He was devoted. No, Lord, I have never eaten anything unclean. The Lord chose him. 
They go and be the mouthpiece. So God's sovereignty is seen in this passage. It ought to give us confidence in the mission that He's entrusted to us. It ought to give us humility in our view of ourselves and God. He's sovereign. We are not. We are the recipients of, of His good news. It ought, it's God's sovereignty ought to make us patient and steadfast in our prayer for those that are far from Him. And then it ought, it ought to elicit praise from our mouth. Man, God is sovereign. He's, he's providentially working out His plan. This is who He is, not some, some soft, ethereal, experiential God. No, He is sovereign, the Lord of all the nations. All right, second, um, I'll speed up, I promise. Um, second principle, obedience to God's commands is the path to true blessing. Obedience to God's commands is the true path of blessing. Again, we looked at Cornelius. We kind of did a, a deep dive into who this dude was and what we see. But what we know is that God blessed his obedience. God certainly did. Your prayers and your alms have, have gone up as a memorial before God. And then he and his household are blessed for generations to follow. He's a living illustration of Psalm 121, uh, or 128, verse 1. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. And then Psalm 112, uh, verse 1 through 6. Psalm 112 is a great one just to go through. But again, it illustrates this point. The first verse says, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord and who greatly delights in his commandments. We're saved completely by grace. We're saved completely by what God has done. His unmerited favor, His sovereignty working in our lives. And yet, the day in and day out obedience, the day in and day out faith that is seen through your fingertips matters to God. If you want to receive the blessing of God, you obey God. That's it. So obedience to God's command is a true path of blessing. Third, in Christ, God makes clean His people. In Christ, God makes clean his people. Cornelius' obedience, his fearing of the Lord did not cleanse his soul. That is not what did it. It was the Lord God who said, what God made clean do not call common. Again, because of our sin, all of us are defiled, all of us are filthy, all of us are without hope of gaining access into the kingdom of Christ. And so is every all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Christ, who has no blemish, who is righteous in every respect, he bore the wrath that you and I deserve. On the cross. And then he rose victorious over death. Over the enemy. He's the one who makes his people clean. It says in, in 1 John. It says if we walk in the light. As he is in the light. We have fellowship with one another. And then the blood of Jesus. His son cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins. He is faithful and just. To forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then lastly. Last one. The kingdom of Christ will surely advance to cover the entire earth. The kingdom of Christ will advance to cover the entire earth. It's made abundantly clear. We, we, we went back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8 a couple times. This is a blueprint for how the gospel is going to expand. You will receive power to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then the rest of the book of Acts, it chronicles that, that movement of the gospel throughout these regions. And then it ends, the very last chapter, the last couple verses, it says that Paul, he, he, he stays in prison and that the gospel message goes forth unhindered. Unhindered are like some of the last couple words of the book of Acts. To make the point that the kingdom of Christ will for sure cover the entire earth. So we have reason to be confident. We have reason to be bold. Because our king is sovereign. 
It's He who has made us clean. It's He who is working before us. So let's go. Let's take, let's take the earth for His glory. Let me pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the grace of Christ to cleanse us through Your death, through Your resurrection, and by Your Holy Spirit <clears throat> making us alive. Thank You for the example of Cornelius. <clears throat> thank You for the example of Peter. God, help us to live as those who have, who have this, this humble confidence. Humble in that we know that we've done nothing to merit your favor. You've sovereignly chosen us. And yet we're abundantly confident. Because you are, you're also sovereignly choosing other people. <laughs> and this kingdom that we are a part of is one that is, in, is going to advance and will continue to advance in an unhindered nation, uh, nature. In places like China, where the persecution is immense and great, your kingdom goes forth. Yeah, God, give us the type of boldness, the type of confidence to move forward in faith in the ways that you show us. We pray, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen.